Today's the second. I need to fix my watch. Okay, it's May 2nd, Sunday morning. Everybody remembers who Ronald Reagan is? In the Cold War, we began to make treaties with the Soviet Union. At some point, they realized that the proliferation of nuclear weapons was kind of a futile event, that if we kept building more and more and more and more, at some point we had more than we needed. And so there were treaties established to reduce the number. Everybody was worried because how do you know that you can trust that they're reducing the numbers just like you are? And Ronald Reagan was pretty famous for his, his uh, slogan. He said, well, we'll trust, but we'll verify. The reason that I, I'm using that title this morning is something that bothers me about Christianity is people describe it as an act of blind faith. Have you ever had somebody tell you, oh, well, you just have to have faith? Come on, our generation remembers George Michael. <laughs> you know, he sang a song, you just have to have faith. At the same time, he's having lewd acts with a man in the, in the UK in a public restroom. It's, it's become, you have TV preachers tell you, you just have to have faith. Uh, maybe an investment salesman will tell you, you just have to have faith. You know, we're going to make money. It's been my experience that when somebody wants you just to have faith and it's not based upon anything, whether they know it or not, they're trying to take advantage of you. I mean, with knowingly or unknowingly. We're told to just have faith. But in the Bible, faith is not just an intellectual acceptance. It's also not something that has no substance. It's not something that you don't, that's not based upon anything. In fact, in the English vernacular, faith usually means to believe, like I believe that's true, or a belief, like my faith is Catholicism, my faith is Islam. So it's either speaking of the fact that you believe in something or the collection of your beliefs under some category. In the Bible, though, the Hebrew word for faith lends more to the idea of trust. In fact, faith is only used two times in the Old Testament, period. And, you know, the Old Testament was written from 1600 right up into the time of Christ. Those 1600 years, the word faith only appears twice because the writers used the word trust instead. The idea being not simply that you believe, but that there's a relationship that has occurred where trust is established. When you get to the Greek that the New Testament was written in, they take the word faith and the word is pistis, which everybody can kind of giggle about that. Greek's a really colorful language. Uh, the word love has seven different uses in Greek, where we use love as a catch-all for all kind of things. A guy says he makes love to someone. He says he loves his kids. And it's the same spelling. It's the same context. But it means different things. In Greek, there's seven different ways to say love because it's a colorful language. Well, when the New Testament writers use the word faith, which in Greek is pistis, what it speaks of is a persuaded confidence. Real similar to trust, but it's based on something. When you say that you have faith, it's not just, well, okay, I don't understand any of this and I, I don't know anything about it, but I, I just believe, which is the way we use it in English. It is a persuaded confidence. To be persuaded, you have to know something. To have confidence in something, that has to be based on something. Have you all worked around people for years that say, I'll trust you until you give me a reason not to? Or, uh, I don't know them very well, so I can't 
I'm not sure I can trust them to go make bank deposits. Your relationship with, with Jesus or with the Father is not much different. It has to be based on some kind of relationship. And if you don't know Him very well, if you don't know Him very well yet, it's unreasonable for you to have a great degree of trust or confidence. When someone is a brand new Christian, they're not often told, uh, at least not in my experience, to sell everything they have and go to a foreign country. They've not built a relationship with their God yet that they would have that kind of trust or confidence. They may want to. I mean, they may believe he's who he says he is, but other things have had to occur in their life to convince them, not only that they're hearing his voice, but that if he tells them that, they're not going to be let down. Biblical faith is never blind. And you can't have real faith or trust without knowing someone. I can't have a great deal of faith in Mandy's ability to sing if Mandy's never sung, if I've never heard her sing. But after I've been in situations where she's been asked to sing and I've heard it over and over and over, then I can have a great deal of confidence. I can be fully persuaded that if Mandy's asked to sing, she'll do a good job. Does that make sense to y'all? The way that we use faith in English is an intellectual acceptance. Oh, you just have to have faith. You don't understand that? That's okay. Just have faith. The Bible never uses it that way. Christians use it that way all the time. And it's it's good for me to point out, and I I want you all to understand, the biggest problem that Christianity has is Christianity is loosely defined by most people as one-fifth of the world's population. Anybody who in any way identifies with the man Jesus. The problem is that the Bible only defines Christians as those who adhere to his teaching, which is a much, much, much smaller number. So, well, golly, that's awful judgmental. I don't, I don't get to be the judge about that. I just get to do my best to adhere to his teaching so that I'm a real Christian. A friend of mine was in a nuclear plant in the 80s, and he was considering Christianity. You know, he was not stupid enough, not... Uh, just naive enough to say, all right, well, I want to be one of those without knowing what it was about. And as he began to examine Christianity around him, he said, man, they're all flakes. You know, the guys I see on TV want my money. The guys that I work with that say they are, are, he used the words nerd, geekish. You know, he couldn't relate to them at all. He went and visited a couple churches and the pastor had a limp, cold handshake. He just couldn't relate. And so he was praying to himself. You know, I, I think it's amazing. Most people, whether they've ever been in church, whether they've ever read the Bible, have an innate desire to pray. There's something in, in fact, the Bible says God placed in the hearts of men eternity. There's a desire for eternity. There's a desire for something beyond what you see. You can argue about what that is or whether it's a psychological condition. I can just tell you, in all the nations of the world, people worship something. Well, this guy... Uh, was walking in the nuclear plant, and he says, you know, God, I I think I'd like to be a Christian, but man, all your people, they they suck so bad, you know? I mean, he, he was just being honest. And he said for one of the first times in his life, a thought that was outside of his thoughts, something from the outside came in, like it was interjected and said, why don't you be a real one? You know, at a time in my life where I had become converted to Christianity and I was looking for a real Christian, I met that guy that had had that experience 20 years earlier. 
If he had not decided to be a real Christian, I wouldn't know very many real Christians. It's interesting the lengths that God goes through to put people in your path that can help you have confidence. So that moved you all the way from Arkansas. There are two terribly ignorant positions that I want to get out of the way before we get into uh, the actual Bible this morning. The first is what Christians tend to blame secularists of. Okay, And that is a bias regarding the supernatural. In other words, they will read the Bible, but anything that is outside of what they know to be true. And what we know to be true is changing constantly. But what they know to be true in this day, anything outside of that, they assume cannot be right. That bias is supremely arrogant. That assumes that you know everything already and that you are a fit judge to determine whether or not the 44 authors that wrote the Bible over a period of 1,700 years on at least three continents and maybe four were all right or wrong. That's really not a fair position to put yourself in. i give you a couple examples. They had not found geological evidence, archaeological evidence, of the city of Jericho. So scholars for years, when they got to the story of Jericho, said, well, we know that there is no city of Jericho, so this story must be figurative if it has any value at all. The Bible's wrong. Until the 1920s when they found the city of Jericho. So the first bias that we want to do away with when we're talking about the Word, don't assume just because you don't know it to be true that it's not. Just approach it with an open mind. That's usually how Christians attack secularists. Uh, if they see a miracle... Say, oh, well, we know that's not true because supernatural things don't happen. How do we know that that's not true? There are millions of people around the world that are saying miracles occur on a regular basis. The second position, though, is the one that Christianity is guilty of. That is, all of our assumptions must be true or it lessens God in some way. You know, I remember when I was reading Genesis for the first time and people around me were saying, the earth is 6,000 years old. I didn't grow up in a little box that was Christianity. I said, the earth is 6,000 years old. Where did we get these dinosaur bones from that are millions of years old? And you know, I listened to doctors come in that were creationists that uh, would explain all of the reasons that carbon dating was flawed and all these things. And I just had a hard time swallowing it. Because to me, it meant that every credible scientist that I had ever heard, everything that I had learned in school would have to be totally wrong and I wasn't sure that the guy who was speaking had that kind of authority. So I began to study the Word and I found out, you know what? The Bible never says that the earth is 6,000 years old. The Bible speaks of upright man as we know him today coming out of Mesopotamia area right around the Tigris and Euphrates River where the Bible says the Garden of Eden is as being somewhere around 6,000 years old. That's not all that inconsistent with what science says. It says six to 10,000 years ago, civilizations as we know them today, with upright, intelligent men, able to write languages, those kind of things, originated in that area. What was before that, science has theories about and the Bible doesn't address. Christians make assumptions about the Bible and then force the world to believe them or somehow it lessens God. When I began to talk with other Christians and say, hey, I'm not sure that the earth is 6,000 years old. They, you know, like I was a heretic or something. And in fact, the church has a long history of this. When people said, 
uh, the earth is not the center of the universe. You know who persecuted him? The church. When people said uh, the earth might not be flat. The church of the day persecuted him. Indeed, any time there was ever a significant scientific breakthrough, the church of the day is the one that persecuted him because they thought in some way that lessened God when the truth is the Bible teaches the universe declares God's glory and His majesty. Let me say this when I say church. I'm speaking of a Roman Catholic thing that started around the year 500 and lasted until about the year 1500 and corresponds to what Western civilization calls the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages that you studied in Western Civ have to do with the time period where the average guy on the street was not allowed to read a Bible because it was written in a dead language of the Romans called Latin. The idea was very, very simple. Control the people by controlling their knowledge. If you can't read the Bible to find out what it says for yourself, you're dependent upon somebody else to tell you what it says. And that church held the world in darkness for a thousand years and burned anybody, literally burned, at a stake that challenged their authority. Now, in recent times, we don't have the same Roman Catholic Church that we had then. Nobody's being burned at a stake today uh, because a Reformation has changed that. But as Christians, we don't need to just make gross assumptions about the Bible and try to force people to believe that. Uh, Assumptions are everywhere. It's a predetermined framework we have. You grow up hearing God knows everything. God is everywhere. Some of that may or may not be true. Angels have wings. I mean, you can think of a bunch of these that you're taught that are not necessarily plainly stated in the Bible. In our day, a new assumption that everybody is having to believe or you're not a Christian, right? And this is just in our day. It's 150 years old when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. So we have a new assumption here is that there must be a pre-wrath rapture. And half the people that believe it don't even know what that is. The church is teaching that you have to believe that before the last days, when there's a reign of an Antichrist, that the church is going to disappear off the earth. That was never taught before 150 years ago. But if you tell Christianity you don't believe that, they throw you out. Why? Well, it's best-selling books at Walmart. It's, there's a lot of reasons. It's a self-serving teaching. But I, I don't want to talk about that this morning. All I'm asking for this morning as we go over this word as we examine the Bible, is that we don't come with either bias. That as Christians, we don't force everybody to believe assumptions. Let's stick to what's plainly stated. And that as skeptics, and I play both roles pretty often, we don't assume that just because we don't know it to be true, that it must not be true. Is that fair enough? Okay. Let me tell you a little bit about what the story of the Bible is. And you guys would do good to start to learn to put this in a narrative. Because when you're looking at these 66 books, it can be kind of overwhelming. And when you want to study it and investigate it for the first time, you kind of, it's, how do you know where to start? And if anybody's like me in here, first time I picked up the Bible, I turned to Genesis. And before long, I was in endless genealogies. So I said, well, maybe I'll try the New Testament. So I flipped over to Matthew and I read. And, you know, the first chapter of Matthew is 28 generations of begot, 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 begot. No wonder people turn away. You know, we need to have an overall view of what the Bible is about. Some some idea of the general thrust of the book. So that when you're reading it, you can put it into perspective. 
in its, in its framework. I'll give you a little bit of that now and then we'll get into the Word. Basically, the Bible does not pick up with the creation in the very beginning. Everybody thinks that because the book of Genesis starts in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The second verse is really important, though. It says, now the earth was formless and void. In other words, the Bible makes the assumption, the assertion, rather, that the God that we're talking about, the God that the Bible is about, is the same God that created the heavens and the earth. Now let's talk about the point at which the earth was formless and void. You know one reason that's really important? Most people in the scientific world say that some kind of asteroid or some foreign body hit the earth millions of years ago, that it created such a big dust cloud that it blocked out the light of the sun, so there was darkness, that thrust us into a long ice age, killed everything that was here, and then there was a thaw and then a uh, renewal of things. That's not all that different than what the Bible says. The uh, second verse of the Bible says now, in other words, now we're talking about this time period, now the earth was formless and void, and God's Spirit was hovering over the darkness and over the waters. The Bible story picks up with the point at which there was water and darkness on the earth and then begins to describe its renewal, how man was put on the earth. And the story is the, the introduction of man, his fall from his relationship with God, and how to get back there. The Bible is not a scientific handbook of the order of created events, the origins of the earth, of any of those things. The Bible's the story of man who was placed on the earth and his fall from God and his return back to God. Does that make sense? And it starts with Adam and Eve. The federal head of the human race, the guy that is the beginning of man as we know it, is a guy named Adam. And the Bible picks up with his story and the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years of history. 2,000 years. So... To say that the Bible does or doesn't say something in the first 11 chapters is covering 2,000 years of history. In, in 11 chapters, could you write an extensive volume of 2,000? You, you can't, and it wasn't meant to. It was meant for the writer of the first five books of the Bible, Moses, to give you a brief overview of the previous two, excuse me, 1,600 years in Moses' day up to his time so that you would know where we were in this creation story. I found it interesting that as I read a book called Eternity in Their Hearts, it was written by Don Richardson, that every, well, let me say it this way, he was studying the rise of communism and fascism and the things that caused World War II. And as he began to study it, he, he found that a, a theory had been taught all over the Eastern Bloc countries by Edward Tyler, what happened is Tyler lived in a day when Darwin's theories were just becoming popular. So we're talking about the early, 19, or early 1800s is really what we're talking about. He took Darwin's theories a step further, a place Darwin never intended to go. He said, if man is evolving from a lower life form into something that is more advanced and that this adaptation is occurring on a regular basis, let's look and see out of mankind who the most advanced are. As he looked around, it was the white Europeans. They were more advanced. They had more industrial technology. Their civilizations were more advanced. This was kind of self-serving in that he was a, a white European. And he said, well, 
if the white Europeans are the most advanced on the planet, they, that must mean that they've evolved from the lower forms. He said, that must be the colored peoples of the world. And he said, the colored peoples of the world were polytheistic. They had many gods. This was his theory. And the white Europeans have one god. So the natural evolution of man's thoughts on religion should move from many gods to one god. And he theorized that the next step was to know God. This teaching caught on. It spread like wildfire. It's still being taught in a lot of eastern countries. China's one in which it is. In universities. The problem is the most primitive peoples on the earth were monotheistic. So the theory is hugely flawed in that as far back as you can go, people worshipped one God, not many. Uh, the book Eternity in the Hearts chronicles that in a big way. Most of the time they began worshipping one God who was above all, all others and they uh, strayed into polytheism. But it didn't start with polytheism. So, well, why is all that important? Because the Bible starts with the claim. We're going to talk about the God who's above every other. It doesn't say that there are no other spiritual powers. In fact, everybody in here is familiar with the term Satan. It speaks of a God, if you will, some spiritual power that is opposing man. And he's introduced in the second chapter of the Bible. So the Bible starts with the God who creates everything and then begins to tell you the story of how man relates to him. And early on, man let him down. Basically what God wanted in the story of the garden was he wanted the right to choose for man what was good and bad. He wanted to help man make man's decisions. He wanted man to rely on him to tell them what was good and bad. Because of some deception and some things we don't have time to go into now, man rejected God for that purpose and wanted the ability to choose what was right and wrong for himself. This story is reflected in various cultures throughout the world. I read about some Santal Indians one time that tell a, a story where man's not in a garden, he's in a cave. But the same basic scenario happens, and it's followed by a worldwide flood, which in the Bible, in the ninth chapter, you see no eighth chapter, you see Noah's flood. This is a familiar story that is in folklore, if you will, around the world in almost every country. I say that the Bible's an uncorrupted version and the others are corrupted, but that, that I'll forgive you if you don't believe yet. From, from the time period where man rejected God, you go through a series of prophets and promises where God was doing this one thing. He was making promises and then fulfilling them to give people reasons to have confidence, to have faith in what he said. Our faith's not blind, not at all. He sent prophets. He sent uh, miracles. He did all kind of things for the purpose of building your faith, giving you a reason to trust him. That's what the Bible story is about. And it culminates in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the first book, Genesis, being a seed, the last book, Revelation, being the end product with man on the earth in a state where we are totally dependent upon God for our knowledge of right and wrong. Death has been removed that was entered through Adam. There's no more crying, no more tears. It kind of sounds euphoric. But it also describes ruling and reigning over other nations. It describes a lot of things like that in the Bible's that story. If you put that in that context, then everything else that you see, whether we're talking about 
archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, all those things. Some things the Bible doesn't cover because it was not pertinent to that story. Does that make sense? Okay, let's, let's get there then. In John 21, John's the fourth book of the New Testament. So, you find the middle of the Bible and hang it right, you'll get to John. In a nutshell, everything that I've said thus far is, is basically wrapped up in this. The Bible never asks you, never makes the claim that you should believe without any evidence. The Bible writers never go so far as to say, just believe regardless of, of what you see. In John 21, the last sentence, the last paragraph that you find in the book of John, and by the way, the writer, John, he was in his 20s when Jesus walked the earth. Okay, He, he was about our age. He lived to be 100. He was the only one of the original apostles that was not martyred, that was not killed for his testimony. But he was imprisoned. Uh, he was dropped in oil one time to be burned alive. And he survived it. This guy lived uh, to somewhere around A.D. 100 and wrote one, two, three, four books in the New Testament. Okay, and listen to his testimony. I mean, this is a real simple thing, but I just, I just want you to hear it. It's John 21, verse 24. It's the last two paragraphs of the book of John. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Do you hear what he says? John writes the book of John. He writes 21 chapters that is the story of Jesus' life for this purpose. At the end of it, he says, guys, I'm not talking about something that I heard. He says, I'm not talking about something that I heard. I'm, I am the disciple that was mentioned in this book throughout these stories. He said, I'm the same one that was written about earlier in these, and I'm testifying to something that I saw, something that I experienced. He said, and if I took the time to write down everything, I don't think there'd be enough books to contain it in the world. When you're examining the Bible, John is a great place to start because John was written to people like us. You don't have to be a Jewish scholar. You don't have to understand all the customs and histories of the past. John was written to believers worldwide from every faith, not faith, from every ethnic group, from every background for one purpose, to explain to you that the God that the Bible talks about is worth serving, that he's represented in the man Jesus. But here's really what I want to get to. When we're talking about an evidence or a reason to have assurance, a reason to have faith, the first thing that strikes me about the Bible is that it was written, in most cases, by people who had firsthand experiences with God. In other words, John's not writing of a story that he heard repeated many times. John, who wrote the book of John, is writing about the things that he experienced in his life from age about 22 to 100. It's his personal testimony. I had a friend that I went to the Omni Center in Houston with to see Mike Tyson knock out Leon Spinks. When I was there, and you all know that fight was very, very short. It was kind of a debacle. When I was there, 
he got up and went to get a beer and some nachos. And when he came back, the fight was over. He did not see Mike Tyson knock out Leon Spinks. Did he have trouble believing me, though? I said, no, I was here. I just saw it. I know it was quick, but he knocked him out in the first round. Later, over time, he probably saw replays. He heard other people repeat it. The Bible story is not much different. We have a firsthand account in John who says, hey, I was there. I saw it. This is what happened. Now, you may not know John well enough to really trust him yet. And if he were the only source, I, would, I wouldn't advocate just trusting him. But when you begin to see multiple firsthand accounts written within, get this, written within 40 or 50 years of Jesus' life, why would you not believe them? Most of our parents in here were born in the, uh, from mid-30, <laughs> from the mid-1930s on up to somewhere in the 1940s. If they talked to you about World War II, though none of us in here were at World War II, we don't discount them. None of us experienced World War II, but we can read the histories of it, and we believe that what is written for the most part is accurate. Why would we take such a skeptical approach to the same accounts that are written within 30, 40, 50 years of Jesus' lifetime as if they could not be true? I've noticed that when there are scholars on TV, they never put conservative scholars and I think that the reason is when they want to comment about biblical history, when they want to comment about something, they're looking for fringe opinions that are outlandish way out there because it creates interest in the program. Christians watch because they say, oh, my God, who's this guy is crazy. People from a secular point of view watch because it's sensational. You know, right now we were at a table the other night and somebody who I think is a reasonable human being who uh, seems pretty intelligent, fairly nice guy, was talking as if he had a great deal of knowledge and authority about the New Testament. And as I was listening to him, it, it became really evident to me it has got to have been years since he read the New Testament, if he ever read it in its entirety. I'm, I think it's more valid to place faith in what was written by people who spent their lifetime in it and examine that than just the word of people who have small excerpts of this. He was talking about the Da Vinci Code and asserting things that the Bible said that I've read this Bible through I don't know how many times now are absolutely not in it. But everybody at the table just sat and listened and said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Why are we so willing to place trust in what people would say without having examined it for ourselves? We can't do that. The kind of faith that the Bible speaks of is not one that is not based on knowledge. It is based upon God revealing Himself to you. In Acts 1, which if you're in John, you, you hang a right, you'll go through the book of, well, you won't go through any book. You hang, in my Bible, one page. Listen to this. John was a Jew, by the way, and it's fitting since it was in Israel and it was speaking of a Jewish king that he testified about it. Luke was not a Jew. Luke was a Greek. I'm not, I mean, People that have not spent a lot of time studying this don't, don't always pick up on that. John, you could argue, had a national bias, maybe. A reason to say the things he did about Jesus. Luke had no such reasons. Luke was a physician. John was a fisherman. Forty-four different authors wrote the Bible over 1,700 years from different walks of life 
different professions. Some were royal officials. Some were lowly fishermen. Some were physicians. Some were educated in a religious environment. Differently, and, and yet there's one constant theme from the beginning to the end. It's important to note that it adds to its validity. Listen to what Luke says here. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus means lover of God, by the way, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, was written for one purpose, to give many convincing proofs that Jesus was who he said he was. This book, Acts, follows the book of Luke, written to the same person, for the purpose of chronicling the church history so that we would have something to look at and believe that when we see the scripture principles that it teaches, that when they're lived out, certain results happen. What I'm getting at is whether we're talking about John, who was a Jew and in his 20s, or Luke, who was probably in his 40s, who was a Greek, different nationality, different place, different educational levels, one a fisherman, the other a doctor, these guys saw and experienced things that they wrote down for the purpose of giving you proof or evidence that God's who he says he is. Christianity does not ask you to have blind faith. There's never a time in which God says, believe me, and it's not based on anything. It's always based upon the fact that he has proven himself to you over and over and over, given the opportunity. In Romans 16, and we don't have to turn there, I'll just tell you what it says. In Romans 16:25, and by the way, Romans is the next book. It's right after Acts. Paul makes the statement, that all of the prophetic writings, and the prophetic writings are these 66 books of the Bible, were given for one purpose, that you might believe. Now that's a remarkable statement when you think about it. 44 different men wrote 66 books. Most of them were martyred, were killed, were at the very least tortured for writing these things down. They were unpopular in their day. They railed against a establishment um, that oppressed them in most cases. And yet they wrote these things down and Peter said they wrote them down and they had in mind or it had been revealed to them that they were serving a later generation. They wrote them down so that we would have a reason to believe. So next time you uh, think about Christianity and you think, oh man, uh, you just have to believe. Or you think people are believing blindly that's not the case. The Bible was written for the purpose of giving you evidence or convincing proofs so that you will believe. Uh, there's a problem with that, and I know it. The problem inherently is if you don't accept what the Scriptures say are true, then, the, <laughs> then there's no... It's, it's a circular argument. If you can't believe that the Bible was true, then how can you believe the proofs that were contained in the Bible? Does that make sense? In Hebrews 1 which is a little further to the right. One. Listen to this. We have the testimony of the books of the Bible. We also have the testimony of Jesus himself. Hebrews 1 says, In the past, 
Wait till I hear pages quit turning. I was preaching one time, an old lady stuck her hand up in the back. She said, wait a minute, preacher. I'm not there yet. <laughs> and ever, ever since, I have tried to... Just one. Hebrews one. Yeah, one one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What I'm getting at is you have the books of the Bible. Then you have the testimony of men who actually met with the guy that claimed to be the Son of God. It's not just that you are reading something that somebody wrote years before. You're also reading eyewitness testimony of people that met the guy that claimed to be the exact representation of God. Even that in itself, I wouldn't expect everybody to believe. But back in John, and I I can just read this to you unless you... I rarely ever lie when I'm preaching, though. So if you don't want to turn, that's okay. Back in John, listen to what Jesus himself said. This is important, okay? And I want you to understand this. This is John 10, and it's verse 33. It says, we, Jesus made the claim that he was the Son of God. And listen to how people reacted to him. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus said he's the Son of God. The Jews picked up stones to throw at him, to throw rocks at him until he died. I mean, we're talking about a harsh death. And when he said, hey, why are you doing this? They said, because you claim to be God and you're a mere man, a regular guy. Listen how Jesus said. Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. We're not just talking about eyewitness testimony that they heard Jesus. We're talking about Jesus himself stood before all the people of his day and said, Hey, you don't have to believe me unless you see me do the miracles that show I am who I said I am. And the Gospels contain those miracles. When the secularist gets to them as they're reading, they say, oh, that can't be real. We know that nobody who's dead rises again. We know that nobody who has blind eyes from birth suddenly sees. There is either a natural explanation or this didn't happen. Why do we come to that conclusion, though? There were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. We have copies of their handwritten testimony that survived from that day till now, that they saw it. The book of John begins with the testimony, my eyes have beheld and my hand have touched the things I'm fixing to tell you. If I saw a fight last Saturday and I was there and I was recounting the testimony to you as an eyewitness account, most of you would believe what I was saying. But somehow or another, because this is the Bible, we've been taught to be skeptical about it. In John 1, you get, the, the, you get this statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is a different John, by the way. And you see that as you keep reading. This is the one that everybody calls John the Baptist. John was not Baptist. The Baptist denomination is a product of... I don't know if I can say that. The Baptist denomination has its roots, at least the Southern Baptist, in a group of people that did not want African Americans in their church from the Civil War days forward. So when you see John the Baptist in the Bible, please don't equate it with that group. It's John the Baptizer. And he came. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. I could keep reading that, but... Here's the thing. The Bible contains the written word. It contains eyewitness testimonies. And then the stories of multiple men throughout centuries that God sent with a word from God to help people believe. And in almost every case, there were miracles that backed these things up to cause people to believe. God is trying to reveal himself to mankind. But all of that is for naught. If you can't believe that the word's true, so why would you believe that the word is true? Aside from things like it's written from first hand, aside from all of the statistical arguments that people can make, like there's 700 and some odd prophecies in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. Things like the town that he would be born in, uh, the family line he would be descended from, um, all of those kind of things. That doesn't mean anything if you can't believe that the Bible is true. So how do you eventually get to a place where you can place trust or faith or confidence in, uh, in Jesus? Jesus said it in this way. In John 8, 42, this is what Jesus says it boils down to. This sounds kind of condescending at first, but I'll clarify it because I promise it's not. John eight forty two says... If God were your father, you would love me. He's speaking to religious people, by the way. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he who sent me. But he sent me. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Here's the verse I wanted to get to. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Here's the thing. When we're talking with people, when we're examining this for ourselves, all you can do is ask for God to reveal himself to you. Ask for him to show you evidences, reasons to have confidence that the book is true, that the stories are true, that the relationship is true. No person can do that for you. In 1993, I was standing in a living room. I was fairly well intellectually convinced that the Bible was real. But the problem that I was really having was I didn't like the way that it made me feel about the way I was living. Because I was involved in everything that everybody else was involved in. And I hate Christian testimonies because when they give them, they make it sound like they were such bad people that the conclusion is you cross your arms and go, well, (laughs) 
He needed religion, you know? I mean, when all you do is talk about, you know, smoking dope or the horrors that you ran with or all of those things, then you alienate half the audience and they go, well, of course, you, you needed Jesus. The reality is Jesus revealed himself to me in a way that either makes me insane or that I, I mean, either that I'm lying to you about it, I'm insane, or that I'm telling the truth. And he revealed himself in a way that now I know this is true. All we can do is ask for that experience to honest seekers that it would be given so that they know that it's true. Because there's not an intellectual argument in the world that can be given that can't be argued against. And, you know, there are people that don't believe that we landed on the moon. You know, they, they think that was a Hollywood creation. All the argument in the world, you can show them pictures, and they say they were mocked up in a studio. You can give them uh, Neil Armstrong or one of the guys that was there, personal test. No, I stepped on They still don't believe. We're inherently pretty skeptical. All you can do as a seeker or someone who is, is helping others to seek is say, hey, examine this honestly. Don't be like the guy that was at the table the other night that has heard one or two words out of the entire Bible and make ignorant assumptions about it. Examine it for yourself and see if it's true. Because the Bible was written to give you convincing proofs that it is true. Now, I'm biased as could be. For the last 11 years, I've been thoroughly convinced that it is true. Once you come to a conclusion that it is because God has made His Word real to you, which He's, he's able to do, a guy named Pachati, who is in the 15th Incan dynasty, never heard of Jesus, never read a Bible, never met a Jew. We're, I mean, we're talking about being on the continent of North America before any people ever sailed across it. Looked out of his window one day because they were worshiping a sun god named Verochi. And he said, you know, if this guy's God that we're worshiping and that I'm forcing all my people to worship, he can't be a very good God. The, the cloud, the smallest cloud will cover him up. And he's really pretty predictable. He's kind of a boring God. He comes up every day at the same time. He goes down every day. And he said, if there is a God above that God, I'd like to know it because he might be worth serving. This guy's writings. He's an Incan and his writings still exist. Uh, they, they read like Psalms in the Bible. I've got a book that contains them all. He had a dream that night where the God of the universe revealed himself to him and said, yeah, I'm, he called him the sky God. He's the God that's above the gods that we worship is, is the way he thought about it. God's not incapable of showing you that he's real. In fact, the Bible makes the statement, to everyone who seeks, they find. To everyone that knocks on the door, it's open to them. But the vast majority of people have no real interest in studying and finding out the truth because then they might be compelled to do something about it. See, before I was totally convinced that this was real, before God made it real to me, I could avoid conviction, the feelings of guilt and all those things by reasoning it out. It's all right that I was sleeping with Jennifer while we were in school because I love her and we have a monogamous relationship. It's all right that you know, man's ability to justify himself is amazing. You can do almost in it. I know all of y'all were, you know, like Christians at birth and nobody remembers this. Do y'all remember Eddie Murphy's Raw? I, yeah, we, we all, I think, listen to that. Maybe you didn't. You grew up in a Christian home. He was talking about a guy caught in the very act of adultery, right? 
with literal physical evidence. You all remember what I'm talking about. And yet when he's caught and the wife is, is confronting him, he's able to turn that around, justify what he did, and make her feel guilty about it. The reason that was so funny to all of us that heard that is because it's absolutely true. You know, if you want to steal, you can justify a way to steal. If you want to hurt somebody, you can justify that they deserved it. We watch it all. It's never more clear than if you watch the business environment. That is a natural ability. So people, the Bible says that the the truth is like the light and people avoid it. They run into the darkness to hide from it because we want to be able to justify ourselves. In fact, we've raised up churches. I drove around the neighborhood this morning after I finished studying. I was praying and I looked around and we're certainly not. Y'all, we're tiny. There are all kind of people that are teaching the truth. But many of the church parking lots that were full were full of people that never have made an honest examination of the Scripture. They're going to hear little bits and pieces to appease their conscience, to make them feel better about themselves. Most pastors teach and preach a feel-good story. Their gospel is not... And God's gospel is a, a derivative of an old English God's spell, God's story. Gospel means the story of God. And the story that they're telling of God is one that just says He wants you rich, He wants you fat, happy, he, you know... That is not the story of the Bible, but we run to it and we receive enough weak, dead Christianity to call ourselves Christians, make our consciences feel better, and we go out and live like hell. And so people that are taking an honest examination look and go, wow, these people that call themselves Christians, they really, they're flakes. Even Gandhi said that. You know, anybody ever see the movie Gandhi? You know, Ben Kingsley played Gandhi? Gandhi said, I've examined your Christ. And him I like. It's the Christians I have a problem with. At some point, we who have examined the truth and believe it are persuaded. Those of us that are, we need to stop spending all of our time trying to browbeat people into believing it. We need to just step back, give them the honest opportunity to look at our lives and say, hey, the way that I'm living should show you that there's a God at work in my life. And if, if that doesn't, examine the Word for yourself. The Bible has many witnesses. The best of which is supposed to be those that call themselves Christians. And it's not because most aren't real. Major flaw in the Scripture and quoting the Scripture is if you reject the Scripture, then my words are kind of meaningless. I'm only asking for an honest examination of the truth. And here's what I'm trusting in. It's Matthew 7. It's because it's where I got saved. Matthew 7 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 teach you that if you seek, you'll find Just like God is a father, the Bible calls him a father because if my kids ask me for something good, because I'm their father and I love them, of course I would give it, it to them. God approaches us the same way. He says, if you're asking for truth, I will reveal it to you. There was a native of interior China one time, and missionaries, missionaries were telling this native of interior China that Jesus was superior to uh, the God that he was worshiping. And truthfully, he wasn't worshiping any God. They just assumed that because of his nationality. And he began to study and he began to wonder, uh, you know, how can I know that Jesus is superior? This guy had a dream that night. And I thought it was one of the best examples I've ever heard. He said he dreamed that he fell down into a pit. And Buddha came and said, hey, friend, if uh, if you would just strive to 
reach my hand. You can get up here to where my hand is. I'll help you out. And then Confucius came and walked by the pit and said, Hey, friend, it's unwise where you've fallen. You know, if you can avoid it, don't fall there again. He said, and then Jesus walked by, looked, came down into the pit, picked him up on his shoulder and carried him out. Now that's a simple, simple thing. But you know what that conveyed to the guy? It conveyed that the kind of God that the Bible describes is the one that goes through great lengths to show you who He is, to help you, to reach out to you. The Bible teaches that if you draw near to God, if in your thoughts you will reach t- excuse me, towards Him, He will reach towards you. So it doesn't solely depend upon the, the, the written word. It doesn't solely depend upon the witness of the people. Honestly, the burden is upon each one of us to strive for Him. Turn with me to Acts 17. We're going to close here because y'all are all going to fall asleep. <laughs> Acts 17. I want to give you just a couple thoughts before we get to Acts 17. You know, when I'm saying that it depends upon God's witness and I'm saying that it depends upon you, know, you reading the Scripture, don't get the idea that there's no other evidence out there. You know that science says that the earth at one time had one land mass? And then the study of plate tectonics says that those land masses began to slowly move apart? And that you can put them back together like a puzzle and, and have a supercontinent? The Bible describes a supercontinent in the first chapter. Then in uh, the 11th chapter, it describes they're moving apart. That written at a time period 1,600 years before Jesus, when nobody... I mean, there was... If there were scientists in the day, and Archimedes didn't even live until, you know, 900 years after that, if there were people that believed that, they would have been considered crazy. And the Bible makes that assertion in 1600 B.C. Uh, Not only like land masses, but Isaiah 40, written 740 years before Jesus, says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And that when God comes to judge the earth, it will reel like a a drunkard. He's describing the earth as a a sphere. You know, and we were taught in school that Columbus discovered the new world and that in his day they thought the world was flat. But 740 years before Christ and 21 or 200 years before Columbus sailed, the Bible describes the earth as spherical. A lot of things are in the Bible like that. Uh... George Washington, they say, died because doctors were treating him. And when they were treating him, they were convinced there was something wrong with his blood. So they put leeches on him and they bled him. That was a real common medical practice. Even during the days our country was founded. Fairly modern history, right? The Bible tells you in Genesis 9, life is in the blood. Don't let it escape your body. That sounds so basic to us living in the time period that we are. But you have to understand, during the time period the Bible was written, doctors in Egypt were doing things like taking human excrement and pushing it into a wound for healing. That's, that's what the medical establishment of the day, when the Bible was written, said was good for healing. When the Bible said, at the same time period, if you're sick, go present yourself to a priest. Let him examine that wound and quarantine you for a time. Do you know how the bubonic plague ended? The institution of quarantining. Do you know where they got the idea? The Bible. 
Prior to that, the same doctor that treated Mandy that was sick walked right over and treated Cal who was sick, walked right over and treated Jennifer who was sick. Now, we know now that that transmitted germs from one to the other. It helped spread the disease. The Bible knew that 1,600 years before Jesus ever lived and wrote about it. And yet, we act like, you know, the Bible's some kind of archaic book. It was so far ahead of its time that the people we're still finding out things that it says that are true that... I always have said, if you think science and the Bible don't go hand in hand, give science a little time. It'll catch up. And it always does. I mean, it always does. And where they seem to contradict, there's either been an assumption about what the Bible says that is wrong, or science has overstepped its bound and asserted a theory that is not provable yet. Now, that's a whole other story. You know, germs were not discovered until the early part of the 19th century. Really, that's the 20th century, but 1900s. And it was, they were discovered because a guy found out if he washed himself with lime and soap that the mortality rate of women who were giving birth would drop. Because, you know, 40% of them were dying, you know. That's not very good odds you want to have a baby. He found out if he scrubbed himself that that didn't happen because doctors were wearing the same clothing delivering babies. And it was a mark of uh, honor uh, to have a really bloodied surgical Yeah, it's disgusting. And the Bible says in the book of Leviticus that when you go into a foreign town and you've conquered them, if their silverware, if their plates, they didn't have silverware, but if if anything that you want to take from them could be passed through fire, pass it through the fire. If it could not be passed through the fire, scrub it with hyssop and water. Now, why would you do that? Because God understood, and maybe the guy writing it didn't, but God understood that there were germs on those things. And most, most of the world's uh, major catastrophes that have happened in sickness have happened when one people group from one place travel to another and bring their diseases. The Bible says when you go into another place, Canaan it was talking about, and you conquer it, if you can pass their metal objects through fire to purify them, do it. If you can't, put it under soap and water. You know, more people died prior to the 20th century in battle from dysentery and diseases related to unclean things then died from a puncture wound or a bullet or an arrow. Is that amazing? You know why? If you put half a million people out on a battlefield and they all are using the restroom and things in that area, it's a breeding environment for sickness. More died from that in battle than died from being stabbed. The Bible said 1,600 years before Jesus lived, I mean, we're, we're talking about 3,600 years ago, if you have to go to the bathroom, go outside the camp, away from the people, and dig a hole. You know, it talked about the proper way to have latrines. Uh, this kind of stuff, we kind of scratch our head and you say, well, you know, uh, everybody knows that. Everybody didn't know that. One of the lines that I love, and I hate to quote movies, I, I think the show Men in Black is hilarious. Uh, I really like that. And Tommy Lee Jones is talking with Will Smith in it. And Will Smith cannot believe that there are aliens on the earth. And I realize this is kind of a stretch, okay? But they're sitting there, and he shows him that there were aliens. And then he asks him if he wants to be in the Men in Black service, and they're sitting on a park bench. Some of you may remember this scene. And Will Smith says he can't believe something. And he says, you know, uh, a thousand years ago, everybody said the world was flat. Uh, uh, Five hundred years ago, everybody said uh, that you couldn't trans-navigate the globe. You know, he said, a hundred years ago, they didn't know there were germs. 
Five minutes ago, you thought you were alone on this planet. Can you imagine what we will know tomorrow? Well, the reason I like that is because it's absolutely true. The things that we have stood flat-footed and said cannot be true have been proven wrong time and time and time again. So if you come into contact with something that you think that the Bible says that can't be true, give it the benefit of the doubt. Despite people being burned at the stake for having this in their language, despite all of the hundreds of years of skepticism, this book's a bestseller for a reason. Voltaire stood in the 1700s, and in one spot he stood and he said, the Bible is an ancient, archaic book, and a hundred years from today, the only copies you'll find will be in a museum. God's got a little bit of a sense of humor. A hundred years to the day later, there was a Bible museum founded on that very spot, and it became a distribution center for the Bible. You know, I mean... This has been proven time and time again to multiple people. We're going to close, but I want to tell you this one quick story before we read Acts. 600 years before Jesus, okay, we're talking about a time period when Alexander the Great has not even come into power yet, okay? Alexander the Great conquered the world in a few short years, made most of the world learn to speak Greek. The Romans came in, pushed out Alexander the Great, actually one of his four generals, became the beginning of uh, what we know as, as the Roman reign. That provided a platform for the Gospels to be written in Greek, the Romans built the road, and it could be spread all the way around the world. God did this so that his message would get out. He's caused kingdoms to rise and fall so his message would get out. But more importantly, what we're fixing to read about in Acts 17 because it depends upon God making His Word real to you, He has worked extensively to get you into positions where you have the opportunity to hear His Word. We have the opportunity for it to be made real. Not just in getting you a Bible. 600 years before Jesus was born, there was this plague that came upon uh, Athens, Greece. It's written about in history books. Uh, Epimedes was uh, a Crete. Cretan poet that wrote about it. Several Athenian poets wrote about it and their work has survived today. This plague came upon them and they sacrificed to their gods. They did everything they could think of to get rid of the plague and they couldn't. So they had to ask a foreigner. They sent off somebody new of a prophet named Epimedes who was a Cretan. And they sent off for him to come just as a last ditch effort. There's nothing we can do. This plague is upon us. We don't know what to do. Epimedes shows up and he reasons after looking at their hundreds of gods that, that uh, y'all have seen the Greek pantheon, y'all know. I mean, everything from Hercules to Zeus to all of them were gods. And he says, you know, if you've sacrificed to all these guys, if you have spent time seeking them and they can't do anything to help you, there must be a god that's above them. That was just a rational thought process that he had. He's not written about in the Bible. He is quoted, though, and I'll show you that in a minute. He said, let's do this. Build, build an altar, and tomorrow let's, let's have some uh, lambs of different color. And he put them on a hillside. This is the hillside where the Oropagus, or Mars Hill, is today. And he said, uh, what we're going to do is don't feed these lambs all night. He's trying to set up an environment where God can prove himself if it is God. He's given God the opportunity to show himself. He said, don't feed them all night. Then the next morning, they bring them out. They put them on the hill in front of food, you know, the, where they would normally graze. And he said, let's pray to this unknown God and ask him to show us himself. He said, all these lambs have got to be hungry. We kept them up. Uh, we didn't, didn't allow them to eat. Now we're putting food in front of them. 
if he is God and he wants us to sacrifice to him, let's take the, uh, if these lambs do not feed, let's take them and we'll sacrifice them to this unknown God and see if it helps. They had hundreds of lambs. They did not feed. In fact, the choicest ram from each color group that they had out there, and that's a long story, stood up, walked over to the area where they were going to sacrifice. This was a way for the people in their day to see God's hand at work. They sacrificed to this unknown God on this altar. Not knowing his name, they put an inscription to the unknown God on it in their Greek pantheon because the plague stopped when they did it. Throughout time, uh, 20, 40, 60 years, people had, had an interest in this unknown God, but they didn't know anything about him. They just knew that there was a God who was above the others in their reasoning. 600 years later, a Jewish apostle shows up and listen to what he finds. This is Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, that's Mars Hill, y'all, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything, because he himself gives men life, it's okay, and breath, and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined, get this, he determined the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. The poet that he's quoting, he quotes two poets. One is Epimedes, the Cretan, who came, and they were familiar with the story, and the other was an Athenian poet, and their work has survived today. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I want to point out a couple of things and we're closing. One is, in this instance, God had 600 years before the man showed up, given them uh, something in their culture 
a statue to an unknown God and an event that they grew up hearing about so that when the man of God came to present the God's story to them, the gospel, they could relate to it. He spent time in each one of our lives building events into your life so that when you hear the truth, you have reason to believe it. If you give him the opportunity, he'll prove himself. He said that he determined the times and places that men would live and work. He said that in Acts 17.26. That means that he worked out the areas that you would live in, even the places that you would work, to give you the opportunity to reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. That was his goal in doing that. We have an obligation then to find out whether what this thing says is true. And if you believe it's true, the saddest thing I ever heard, my own father looked at me and said, Son, I have no doubt that the things you're saying are true. I just don't care. That's kind of like knowing that there's a term paper coming and procrastinating knowing that you're going to fail. You don't doubt that you're going to fail. You just don't care. This is not something that you want to act that way about. If there is a God above all of the others, and if He has requirements from you, how, how on earth can we ignore that and then stand before Him? Don't we owe Him a great debt? One last thing. When we're looking at this story and he names two people on the council in the Oropagus, when you're reading miracle accounts like a widow's son from the town of Nain was raised from the dead, remember this would be like telling stories about your parents' childhood because these were written within 30, 40, 50 years of the actual events. Nain was a little town. The Bible is confirmable. These people's names appear in places. The book of Acts records a guy named Erastus, the city uh, director of Public Works. I've been to the city and seen his name chiseled on the wall. Erastus, the director of Public Works. The Bible went out of its way to be confirmable. That's not true of any other book I've ever studied that claimed to be about God. The Mormon Bible? There's not one city. There's no archaeological evidence that exists today. You know, When you're studying Jehovah's Witness, they've just taken this Bible and totally corrupted it. It's not based on any sound Greek uh, scholars, not, none of them believe that. Both of those religions were created between the 18th and the 20th century. You know, there are reasons to believe the Bible. There are not always reasons to believe these other things, and yet people willingly put their blind faith in it. If you have bought into the idea that the Bible can't be true because of what science says, give it a second chance and look at it. I was there. Most people that I meet, because our age is an age where we've just come out of college, for the most part, are there. But as I've examined it, that's not been the truth. God has put you in a situation where He is either trying to reach you or trying to build your confidence so that you can trust Him. And if you come to that conclusion, you have to do something about it. That's what my whole life's been about for the last 11 years. The place that I work, all of those things are just a means to provide for my family so that I can learn more about what God requires and teach others more about it. Not because I'm some kind of weak individual that needs God as a kickstand. I thought I was doing just fine in the world. And by most people's standards, I was. But once I became aware of the truth, I could no longer turn a blind eye to it. And I, I suspect most of you can't either. What you need to do is take an honest examination of it. And this not limited, I mean, just because somebody says they're Christian doesn't mean I'm not, not speaking to you. Because most Christians don't live like the word is true. And God's gone through great lengths to get it to you. 
And he'll go through great lengths to prove it to you if you give him the chance. Scriptural accuracy, archaeological evidence. You know, you can go to Egypt and see when the Bible says that the Pharaoh gave them bricks to make without straw. There's walls where there's bricks with, without straw. When the Bible says there's a tower of Babel in, uh, that was built and God destroyed it, you can go to a place in Iraq that was that kingdom and see where there is literal melted glass still there as a foundation because rock and brick were melted when God destroyed it. Jericho that they said didn't exist. I've been to. I've stood on. I've seen it. The literal walls that the Bible says fell are still there in the dirt. God's gone through great lengths to prove himself. We need to give it the opportunity. Y'all stand up. We'll pray.